0: You haven't opened your Bibles to Romans 9, now is the time to do that. Starting the first one. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience refers through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs, are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, At the the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him he calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort. <clears throat> Excuse me, but on God's mercy, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, "I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth." Therefore, God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, on, and He hardens those He hardens whom He wants to harden. One of you will say to me, "Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist His will?" But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? So what is formed, say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, who who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnants will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth, with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left his us descendants, he would have become like Sodom, he would have been like Gomorrah. But then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it, a righteousness that is like faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame." This is God's Word.
1: Make sure you're all awake. How's that going? Yeah. I figure it's um. Be really honest. Are you hearing the distortion now as I speak, or is it okay? It's okay. Just a little bit fuzzy in that one. Fuzzy wuzzy was a problem in the PA. Six to eight are heading out for their teaching time. Uh, I add my good morning and welcome to that of uh, Jono. In case we haven't met, my name is uh, Ben. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Anglican Churches. Uh, as always, it's a great uh, privilege and pleasure to open the Word of God to us. Please keep your Bibles open at Romans 9. As Jono said, we actually started going through the book of Romans uh, chapter by chapter uh, last year. And I'm gonna hope that this lovely gentleman is giving me something I can use to control. What a glorious servant. And uh we finished at the end of chapter eight, so of course now we head uh for the second half of the book from Romans 9 and beyond. Uh if the voice gets horrible, it's no use me preaching to people who can't hear it, so just yell at me or interrupt me, okay? Uh let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we gather uh, so that we can be strengthened by your word as it is read and taught. Please help us to concentrate uh, to make do with any technical difficulties uh, that we might have your word uh, soak into our hearts and lives and transform us into the likeness of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the Bible's teachings that Christians rightly delight in is the doctrine of assurance. Uh, Our assurance of salvation results from the fact that salvation comes not by our good works or our religious observance, but by faith in what Jesus has done on our behalf. If being saved from God's judgment was dependent on how good I am or how religious I am, then I could never be sure I'm good enough to get into heaven. But if being saved from God's judgment depends on Jesus, who he is, what he has done, well, then there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever about where I'm heading. Faith not in myself but in Jesus results in assurance. And those who are old enough will appreciate my little Stevie Wonder reference there. <laughs> Explaining God's gospel in high definition in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has consistently shown that salvation is indeed by faith or by trust. And therefore, when it comes to the end of that explanation, the end of chapter eight, he writes what I'm going to guess are some of the most cherished words of comfort that arise out of the resulting assurance. I bet these are words that if you've been Christian for a while, you're pretty familiar with. From Romans chapter 8, verse 38 to 39, Paul writes, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Faith in Jesus alone means we enjoy complete assurance of our salvation. But, you knew there was a but coming, right? There is one huge issue that threatens to undermine Paul's teaching on assurance and therefore on faith and therefore on the righteousness of God. At first, this issue might seem a bit strange or foreign to us, but for Paul, it's one of the most pressing problems this side of the cross of Christ. The problem is that the people of Israel by and large, have rejected their Messiah, Jesus, and therefore are rejected by God. God had promised that Israel would always be his special chosen people. Could their sinfulness somehow have gotten so bad that God has gone back on his word? And if God did break his promise to them, How could any of us, mostly Gentiles, ever be truly assured that our salvation is guaranteed? I mean, if you think about it for a minute, it does seem kind of strange that the people who have the Old Testament scriptures, the people that Jesus himself was born into and who he ministered to, the people to whom the gospel was first preached extensively, The people to whom most of the New Testament was written are the people who both in Paul's day and to this day don't recognise Jesus as the Messiah and therefore are not saved. Has God rejected his chosen people? Thereby opening the possibility that perhaps if we don't perform well enough, he could reject us. Because God's righteousness, his reputation is at stake, the Apostle Paul makes a huge defence, an explanation of God's dealings with his chosen people, Israel, this side of the cross. It goes for three chapters. One chunk of Romans lasting three chapters, one argument. And it's for this reason that what I'm preaching this morning is actually the start of one big sermon that spans across three Sundays. You should feel ripped off. You're only getting a third of a sermon this morning. One of the great things that will happen as we go through Paul's big defence is that as the church, we'll come to understand the place of Jews in God's salvation plans. As well as coming to see why it is that we can indeed remain certain of our assurance of salvation, even though the majority of Jews reject the Christ. We begin, really? Bear with me, look at this. We begin by looking at how Paul feels about this issue. Because as a Jew, it's one that affects people close to him. verse 1, you can hear the strength and the emotion in his words. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. It's the only time in the Bible where we see the Apostle Paul saying he could almost give up his salvation for something, namely his own people. For those of us who have family members, loved ones, close friends who don't trust in Jesus, it's a pain we know all too well. In fact, I venture a guess that it's probably the single hardest thing about being a follower of jesus i know i'd rather face violent persecution than see my loved ones remain in their rejection of jesus and therefore head to hell and notice it's literally people that the apostle paul is talking about in the new testament the term israel only ever refers to that people group. Sometimes you hear Christians speaking of the church as the new Israel or the Israel of God, but the New Testament never uses such terms to describe the church, nor the modern-day nation state of Israel, which ain't doing too well at the moment. It's for the people, Israel, that Paul is in English. The heartbreak is magnified by the fact that israel had every reason to come to christ continuing from verse 4. theirs is the adoption of the sonship there's the divine glory the covenant the receiving of the law the temple worship and the promises theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the messiah who is god over all forever praised amen The Messiah, Jesus, is their own God, who they've rejected. And so this means that the apostle, who was just in the last breath, told us that nothing will separate us from the love of God, is here admitting his heartbreak, that it seems his own people, the chosen people, have indeed been separated from God's love. So, despite the pain, Paul has to give a great defense. His first step is to remind us that God is and always has been the God of promise and of election. The defense proper begins in what I think is the key verse for the entire three chapters Romans chapter 9 and verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. That's Paul's opener. This is the thing that Paul's going to give a comprehensive defense for, that God's word, God's promise, despite Israel as a nation by and large rejecting the Christ, it is not found. The first reason we know that's the case is, well, not every physical descendant of Abraham constituted God's holy nation. Uh, continuing from verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel nor because they are his descendants, so they are all Abraham's children. On the contrary, quote, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. To explain this simply, in Genesis we learn that Abraham had two sons. Anyone want to yell out the name of his first son? Ishmael. And he was born to the slave girl, what was her name? Hagar. And he became father of the Ishmaelites, not the Israelites. And, but the son promised to Abraham's own wife, Sarah, was of course the son Isaac. That's not him, but maybe it looked like that. And it's through him that Israel descended. You see, being a physical child of Abraham doesn't make you a spiritual child of Abraham. It's being born according to God's promise, expressed in this case through Isaac's lineage, that makes you a member. But of course it gets narrower than that. For even if you're a descendant of Isaac, that still doesn't guarantee you're part of God's chosen holy people. For God has always been a God of election. He elects people from within the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, often through a refined lineage. And so verse 10, not only that, says Paul, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in the election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Esau, though a descendant of Abraham and Isaac, became a father of the Edomites. Well done, you on that. Who, again, were not part of Israel. Why could God choose to reckon his promised people through Jacob, but not through Esau? Well, it's because God is also the God of election. He's under no obligation to be favourable to any sinner, but he's free to choose to be merciful to those to whom he desires to show mercy. And so verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. He says to Moses, that is when he declares his his nature, his character, his being, his name, he says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or efforts, as to whether you're one of God's holy people, but on God's mercy. God never promised that all the physical descendants of Abraham would receive his mercy. And those to whom he did make such a promise weren't those who did anything good or bad. They're all sinners. It's simply that God chose them in accordance with his own will. He has always been the God who has mercy upon whom he chooses to have mercy. This means that those he does not choose are left in their sinful rebellion against him. Hence, God choosing not to show them mercy is in effect confirming or, to use the more biblical term, hardening them in their rebellion against him. A great case in point, now that we've mentioned Moses, we might as well go Pharaoh. Verse 17, for Scripture says, interestingly, Moses said, but it was written down, and therefore Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up, Pharaoh, for this purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and, like in the case of Pharaoh, he hardens whom he wants to harden. When you and I hear that salvation is purely the choice of God, and has absolutely nothing to do with how good or bad we are, it's often the case that we feel there's something objectionable. To use Paul's own words, the objection goes something like this, verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? Friends, the reason this objection exists is because the human heart always looks for a way to avoid being culpable for sin. The human heart always looks for a way to avoid culpability for sin. In most other areas, we're really appreciative of the fact that God is sovereign, He is in control, He has the ultimate choice, and what He says goes. In almost every area, that's a wonderful thing and a great comfort. But the doctrine of election makes it so blatantly obvious that for God to be holy and only choose some means that all people are deserving of God's wrath, and our sinful hearts that tend towards self-righteousness can easily rail against it. Hence, for those who use God's sovereignty as an excuse or as a way to avoid being blamed for their own sinfulness. Paul, of course, has a rebuke, verse 20. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? God is the creator all of us have rejected his rule, so it's perfectly within his right to save no one. The lump of clay that is all of humanity in our totally depraved and rebellious state is a lump that the potter is not obligated to use to make anything for noble use if he doesn't want to. It's his lump. But of course, he can choose to if he wants, If God so desires, he's free to show mercy to whoever he chooses, as well as not show mercy to others for his own good purposes and plans. What might some of those purposes and plans be? Paul's got a couple of suggestions. Verse 22, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, or with great patience, the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction, What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles? In other words, if God allowed Pharaoh to show his rebelliousness and then suffer the consequences, which he did, so that you upon whom God has chosen to show mercy, can have a greater appreciation of what he's done. Well, that's a pretty cool plan. I mean, it's extreme, but it's amazing. It's a better and more logical first thought to have than why does God still blame me? Now, notice also, as Paul made that last suggestion, he opens up the possibility that God has done some of his choosing, not only from among the Jews, but also among the Gentiles, the non-Jews. In fact, the Old Testament, that's the Jewish scriptures, taught that the true Israel would really be reduced to a remnant from within the descendants of Abraham. And that God would also include Gentiles to join Chosen people. It's easy for you and I to take this for granted, but for the apostles, the notion that non Jews could be fully fledged members of the kingdom of God was one of the biggest scandals in the New Testament. It's why one of the great heresies in the New Testament is Jewish teachers saying that the Gentiles have to become Jews. In order to follow Jesus, they have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses so as to be a Christian, which Paul, of course, goes absolutely nuts at. You want to see him go nuts? It's Galatians chapter 1. It's amazing. And so what Paul does here, being a good teacher and rabbi that he is, is he gives a few scriptures from his Bible to affirm that, yes, God had always planned to save a remnant of Israel from the nation as a whole, and to also bring non-Israelites into his gathered people. We start with the Gentiles, verse 25. Paul's being a good teacher, quoting his Bible. He says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, I will call them my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where I said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. So obviously, even though the Israelites have adoption to sonship, God will yet choose to bless non Israelites, making them children of the living God too. What about the Israelites? Well, verse 27, here we get the negative. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously unless the Lord Almighty have left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah, in other words, totally wiped out. So has the word of God failed in that the nation of Israel on the whole have rejected Jesus as their Messiah? Well, not necessarily. In fact, it's starting to look like God's word is actually being upheld precisely because most Jews reject Christ. So with all that in mind, even though we're still a long way off from a complete answer, we're starting to see that it's reasonable to think that having a large number of Gentiles turn to Christ and having the majority of Jews reject him is not necessarily an indication of failure on God's part. Hence Paul, at this point, can conclude for the time being, what then shall we say? Here's what we'll say, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. It's a neat partial conclusion because at one and the same time it upholds God's plan the things he has made clear in his word, which therefore hasn't failed, And coincidentally, it also upholds the teaching that salvation is by faith, not by works. This is consistent with everything Paul has been teaching so far. As a matter of fact, you can start to notice if you read through Paul's letters that he often kind of has a first half and a second half. And the first half is all about the gospel and theology. And the second half is all about sort of application, implication. And in Romans, that's really clear. The, 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 the turning point comes in 12, verse 1, right? Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. We're going to get there in a few weeks. That means that what he's writing here is not some time-bound application. This is actually part of his theology, part of the gospel, part of what the, the church needs to be aware of. It's a new conclusion because it upholds God's plan and the notion that salvation rightly is by faith. Even the whole way God planned things to happen throughout the history of his chosen people was designed to affirm that salvation comes not by works, but by faith, by trust in Jesus. Paul asserts, that was God's plan all along, that he would deliberately allow Israel by and large to stumble in order to ensure that for those who are saved, their salvation certainly is by faith alone. We see that in the final uh, bit of chapter 9, verse 32. They, that is Israel, stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, see I lay in Zion, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes, literally who has faith in him, will never be put to shame. And it's here that we get, in the first third of a sermon, something of a cliffhanger ending. Just after Paul has concluded that it was always the case that a remnant of Israel would be saved and that salvation would be open to the Gentiles, he now quotes a piece of scripture to suggest that God was very proactive in planning for this to be the case. God himself says, I lay a stone in Zion. It will cause many to stumble and only some to come to faith. Why did God himself plan for the Israelites by and large to reject Jesus as the Christ? And how can God be faithful given that that was his plan? Did he have in mind that such hardening of Israel would be final or only partial? Did he have in mind that Israel would stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Or did he have some sort of restoration in mind? Well, of course, that's what we're going to find out over the coming two weeks as the defense continues. Now, even though I'm only one third of the way through this three part sermon, there are a couple of implications that I think are reasonable to give based on the text. The first one, pretty obviously, is to rethink how you describe your relationship with God. It's very easy for me often to think, well, I've sat under God's word three or four times this week, prayed a couple of times, sinned a few times, not super bad. So I'd say my relationship with God currently stands out, you know, say a six out of 10. Next week I'll try and make it a seven or or an eight because I'll be a bit more committed to prayer and evangelism next week. But of course, as Paul has begun to put together his big defence for what God's doing with Israel, Even there, he constantly affirms the biblical truth that our relationship with God comes not from faith in ourselves or our works, but through faith in Jesus and his work, and his work is perfect and complete and effective. Jesus has done absolutely everything necessary to give us complete confidence in our salvation, both now and into eternity. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So no matter how well or poorly you might be going, if you're in Christ... Your relationship with God is only ever always a 10. That's the beauty of knowing salvation by faith alone. It's a teaching that I hope we've heard many times and that I insist you hear continually because the great reformer Martin Luther said this is the one thing that needs to be constantly on the plate. This is the one thing that we're constantly going to rail against. The second implication is super easy. You're only one-third of the way through a sermon, so make sure you come back next week. (laughs) Let me conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the sovereign God of promise and election, that uh, you plan things in such a way that you are glorified and that your mercy is shown when it's not deserved. Father, we thank you that we can be sure that our assurance uh, remains firm even despite the facts that by and large Israel have rejected their Christ. Uh, Father, uh, we pray that um, we will never get sucked into the idea that our works and our performance is what ultimately defines our relationship with you. Uh, and we pray that you uh, we'll open our eyes to your truths in the coming weeks as we look at, uh, at chapter 10 and 11 uh, to take seriously your plans for your ancient chosen people Israel and how that relates to us in the church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.